0: I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and um, last week we saw in Habakkuk as we continue this sermon series um, that God's eminent judgment was coming on all ungodliness and contrary to popular belief even on the Jews who were not living like they were his. And also, contrary to popular desire. God was saying he was going to judge his people by letting an even more evil nation, the Chaldeans, the future Babylonians, invade their country. And of course, this imminent judgment through another nation made Habakkuk, a prophet of the Jews, very uncomfortable. God sought to first comfort Habakkuk and his people by letting them know that not only was his judgment and correction and discipline imminent, but also his salvation by faith in him. Well, God's comfort for those trusting in his salvation did not stop there. Because yes, he would use the Chaldeans to, to judge the nations, even his people's nations, but nation, but it would all when, but when it was all said and done, God would crush the Chaldeans for their evil invasion. I know that's hard to put together in your mind from first hearing. So, so, so let me express it again. God was letting the evil Chaldeans be as evil as they could be in their pillaging and gobbling up peoples and nations, and in doing so, letting them give his people a much-needed conviction and correction from their divine daddy. But God was at the same time not going to let the Chaldeans get away with their evil behavior. And so in the rest of chapter 2, Habakkuk gets five different woes to the Chaldeans and those Jews who were acting like they were too. A woe is not just a warning, as in woe hold up, check yourself, break yourself, or else, right? But in Habakkuk, as verse six explains, it is also a taunt, right? A tease, a non, you know, a tongue sticking out from the nerd to the bully who happens to be on the other side of the window in the principal's office. God is actually calling his people in this song, in this psalm, right, to taunt Right? He's calling his people to join in in a taunting rhyme in chapter 2, to not only be warned themselves, but to participate in divine teasing and taunting of the bullies and big boys of the day. Why? Because God gets glory. Glory from seeing evil fall under his divinely designed poetic justice and reciprocity, right? And it is this justice and getting what you deserve that makes for these Five woes, this chorus of worshipful taunting of the mighty and evil who are about to enter God's no flex zone is a call for us to look at our broken world and its injustice in the faces of perpetration against all that is holy and not good and evil against human. Some of us even looking in the mirror this time and taunt and warn with the assurance that God is going to put an end to it. These first two of five woes, and I'm taking about two at a time. There are three things I hope we will take heed. First, woe if you take what is not yours to have. Secondly, woe to you who home make from what is evil. And finally, good news if the Lord redeems what you can't. Woe if you take what is not yours to have. Woe for you who homemade from what is evil. And finally, good news if the Lord redeems what you can't. So, the description given of the Chaldean Babylonian army from chapter 1 is true. They are takers. They come to nations and their peoples and take whatever they want without care. In verse 6 in your reading today, it says that they heap up, right? They load up on what is not their own and goods, and it says pledges. Woe to those who do that, because in God's consequence for sin, they end up taking more than they should or could handle. The Chaldeans are not only by force taking things, thus you have in verse 8, the idea of the blood of man and violence. They are also bullying people into unreasonable loans, right? Through extortion, you could imagine, hey, you, give me your daughters to have or give me your land for 10 years interest-free, right? Those were the kind of pledges they were getting. And in getting all of those debtors and, and stuff from people, they became... Hoarders, they became engorged. They became not just loaded, but laden, burdened, holding on to too much because they had taken much more than they should have, and it made them ripe for the taking by those whom they had stolen from, ironically. Do you know there is a double meaning when it says loads with pledges? The original language, it, it can also mean they load up on mud, right? They load up on dirt. They load up on earth. Okay, y'all ready for some poetic justice? Hear this. Back in chapter 1 when the Chaldeans and Babylonians were described to scare God's people about what kind of country they were, it said that nothing could stop the Babylonians from taking your city and taking your stuff, even if you put a big wall around it. Why? Because the Chaldeans, according to chapter 1, verse 10, now listen to this, they would pile up or heap up And load up dirt and mud to do what? To go into your city, to get over the walls and take your stuff. So what is God saying? God is saying that when they take what is not theirs and hoard it, it is only a matter of time that they will actually lay siege to themselves, right? With an inadvertent bridge of stolen stuff. So high that people metaphorically be able to climb over their walls now and get it back from them. They are loading a dirt bridge into their own riches. And so those who, who, whose riches have, been made, have made them big, they're going to go over that wall. And to add that, the word load can, load can mean to weigh yourself down. These Chaldeans and taking and what they is not theirs, they've made themselves, they think, stable. But let's use another word. Immovable. Lethargic. They have buried themselves with in thievery and dishonest and dishonest gain and extortion and they actually get buried not in debt right like the people they put in debt but in evil debt holding they bury themselves and the scripture saying is while they get buried the ones who have been stolen from will awake from their grave from their buried with debt and verse says seven says will make them tremble. You know what the word tremble means? It means to shake. Like the mob does you, like like I know, but watching TV. The shakedown. It literally means if you owe me something, I'm going to hold you upside down and shake you and whatever comes out of your pockets, I can take. It is saying, after shaking others down for their money, God will allow the Chaldeans to be so fat, to be so comfortable, to be so inefficient in all they've gotten, to be so lethargic, so big, that they'll be that much more easy to shake down. Those who have done the evil shakedown on others will be shaken themselves. The Bible says that the Chaldeans will be plundered as in a no-resistance shopping spree. We call that looting, right? That they have looted the lands, and so guess what? They will be so spread, so wide, so big, that looting will be easy. But beyond that, this scripture is saying, woe to the takers, because you take stuff, that has divine interest on it. Look back at verse eight with me. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. It is interesting that the bottom line of taking through unjust and violent means is about the blood of man and violence to the earth. What is this saying? When they stole, when they extorted, when folks commit fraud, they do so not against just the people they stole from, but against the one who created human beings and created stuff. And in doing so, they take resources. They take people that have divine interests attached to them, right? It was God who gave human beings and the earth, and the earth to live and eat and, have a, and create civilizations and to eat for each person to be happy under their own tree, right? What, what that means is that everything anyone has that has been given rightly, has been given by God, their ability to make a living, their ability to enjoy each other, their ability to worship God and, and all that they have and do. And when someone takes that away, when they take and hoard resources, when they sit rich while on, on, the, on, the, on the down of other people, bullying it, they not only take their stuff, but surprise, they steal and hoard from God himself. And think about this, as it sits in their possession, now we're going to get a little bit more into like generational wealth that's been built on evil stuff and stealing stuff and stealing people. But get this, as it compounds and sits in their possession or as they use it or get rich off it, it compounds with God's interest. Wonder what that interest rate's like. You stole some stuff and God didn't miss it. It might be gone, but God is like the super accountant auditor, the perfect auditor. So if you took it, if you stole something, if you stole from a whole nation of people, if you stole a whole group of people from a nation, God remembers that. He doesn't forget like us. And there's interest in it. You know why? God's concerned. And so it piles up a divine judgmental interest in debt. And God will let those who were taken from be the new debt collectors of the evil debt makers. Few and I and others have stolen or extorted. Or they have, whoever they are whether it's unfair interest rates and the live easy money with the small confusing words on the contract at the bottom to get you in an impossible to pay back situation, all kinds of evil high interest loans that they know to give a person like you who can't ever pay it back, it would have been more just and loving to tell you no. God accounts for that. Maybe it's just getting your weed eater stolen. Man, when something like that gets taken, don't you just get angry. Man, my my (laughs) back to my plants getting stolen. I still get upset about that. It's five in the morning, me and Kelly sleeping, we're sleeping in the front room because we were getting an addition put on the back and we couldn't sleep back there. And all of a sudden, the dog starts barking, and I'm like, what is going on? It's like five in the morning. I look outside, and my, ha- my swing that's hanging up on the front porch is doing this. I'm like, somebody been swinging in my swing. <laughs> it's like the ghetto got Goldilocks, right? <laughs> it really was, right? Because guess what? I looked, and not only was somebody swinging in my swing, someone had taken my fern. I looked up, the fern was gone. Obviously, they stood on the swing, got on the banister, and took the fern. And I looked, I said, Kelly, I'm going after them. <laughs> They're not taking my fern. Y'all don't remember Friday? You can't catch no crackhead. You're <laughs> not going to catch no crackhead. You're not! I looked both ways, the swing was still swinging, which means they were there just 30 seconds ago. I looked both ways down the street, they were gone. We need to sign that person up for the Olympics. They were gone. I remember that feeling, you can't have it. I bought that from Home Depot. I watered that thing. I hung that thing up, and you're going to just do the five-finger sale on it? You're just going to take off with my stuff? No, I went in my Volvo, and I was after them. <laughs> it's that bad feeling, and I know it's a simple thing. It's just a bad feeling. But maybe it's less obvious stealing and taking. Relational stealing, right? Where people prey on the lonely and needy and weak Taking friendships and sex and advantages and and taking attention from those weaker than they are socially. Some are taking from needy women or men. Giving them a bad exchange rate of pleasure to, to get what you want in an unfair and sinful relational and social exchange, right? Some are just plain out abusers who take dignity and eat it and feast on someone else's pain. Some of us, like me, oh, I'm, I'm bad, are conversational and social thieves. Yeah, awesome at literally stealing the spotlight because you are stronger, stronger in your personality. We have worked hard to make our story and ourselves big on others' loneliness or gatherings. Some of you steal time from others, even at community groups. Some of us steal time from our families and children for work and pleasure, stealing from our family finances and food for our personal stuff because we are the man or the wife or the woman because no one can stop us. And all of us have been on the end of having mom or dad or friend or boyfriend or neighbor or trusted person extort and steal and take and take from us because we were weak and they were stronger physically or socially or economically or even emotionally. And we have all been abused by takers. Well, God calls us to join the taunt, careful, you may be singing to your own, tease, but woe to you. You who pile so much on yourself of others, of what is not yours, that you will owe more in the end that you can live with and give. It will be taken back from you in an open shame because God has a divine interest on it. And hand in hand with the woe to takers is the woe to homemakers. Yeah, I did a little rhyme there. It ain't cute. It's in the Bible. You got to look at the original language, there's some Hebraic rhyme going on. You know why they use Hebraic rhyme? So you remember. They hadn't done much studies on Hebraic rhyme because they don't want rap to be the divine way of communicating, but it is. (laughs) Oh yeah, I was reading this week deep and it kind of got me off track and I went in John's office. John, guess what? Hip hop is from God. It was back here. They used double entendre, right? They, they used the, 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 the um, rhyme. They use the meter. Why? You know what the, guy, the commentator said? So that what God says to these evil folk will be hung around their necks in ways they can't forget. Sometimes you can't forget a rhyme. Some of y'all remembering rhymes right now. Let's move on. They say anything about hip-hop. That's another sermon. But hand in hand again with this woe to the takers the home to the, is the woe to the homemakers who build their homes, their personal wealth and feed their families and grow their dynasties and do good for themselves. Their portfolio, right? Their family, their children name from what is not theirs. That's a hard one for us Americans. Verse nine says this. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. Woe to him. No, I'm sorry. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's a tough one. One thing that was serious back then was continuing and prospering the family name and land. You had to have enough people to marry, had to have enough sons, had enough have enough land to make it work, which meant building the finances and relationships necessary, being in the right social level. I guess it's not too different. So, so that you and yours would be above any political or economic change. This is about retirement, y'all. This is about annuity. This is about life insurance. This is about real estate. This is about uh, um, retirement, right, and wills. But but the Babylonians were seeking to get social and financial security by how does verse 10 say? Cutting off many peoples by ill-gotten and monopolized resources. With the stone and wood talked about, spoken about in verse 11. Cutting off people meant their land and homes and sons and daughters that would have helped the people of that nation stay relevant as families to continue as a family unit. The Babylonians were taking, taking their family property, taking all the daughters of marrying age, um, taking their sons by killing them or enslaving them, splitting up families, exiling heads of household, or for some of the women, forcing them to have children for them so that their family names would continue and the Jewish family names and heritage would stop. Do you know that's still happening today? In countries where there is Christian oppression and persecution, where there is evil, I said evil, religious expression of Islam, where men will rape to seek to impregnate a Christian woman so the child and the woman under law would have to become a Muslim and thus build the Muslim household. And if the pregnancy does not occur, to leave her ashamed to the point where no Christian man would want her or her husband be tempted to divorce or leave her, cut off. Today, And apart from some of that stuff, the Chaldeans would let their people literally take some of the people's choice houses and land and wells that were part of God's family inheritance for his people. And they thought like verse 10 says, that in doing so bully style to home home and name make, they were setting their nest, their household, their family future and legacy so high, get this, so deep and historically grounded that it was out of reach from any present disaster or ending or judgment but woe right cuz god is saying when when you home make with evil gain and means you will not just be bringing home the bacon or the bread You will not just be storing up lots of investments and all kind of homes and real estate and and all kind of great things for your kids and your name. You will not be bringing pride home when you do evil to make your name and family great and secure it through cutting off other people and stealing and, and misusing resources. You will bring home humiliation for your family and to your name. Look back at verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. You have planned to devise shame for your family. You aren't raising them to a new level of pride and joy or historical dominance. You are establishing historical shame for your family for your name, for your legacy. Here's a true life example. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I know a lot because you had to learn it in school about slavery and civil war and everything else. On our school trips, we'd go to the plantations, right? Man, you go in some of these plantation homes. Oh, you know how we have like What's that thing called? The molding on the top? What's that called? Crown molding? Okay. Thank y'all. Sometimes words escape me. We went in this beautiful southern mansion. And they said, you know what they did? They would take whole trees, these slaves, and carve them out perfectly and sand them down so perfectly, and they would have perfect crown moldings that were actually one quarter hollowed out trees. Beautiful, right? Look at the floors. Look at the woodwork. Look at the beams. Man, the, 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 the craftsmanship. Shouldn't we be excited? It's a house of shame. Oh, those folks thought they were building something so awesome and so beautiful, having parties in it, enjoying it, getting rich off of it. Who built this? Stolen people? Human beings you thought as subhuman. And we're paying $15 to $20 to see this tour? To see a house that was once a nest built so high that they thought the southern way of living would never fall. It not just fell. Shame remains. You know it's hard as a pastor of multi-ethnic church especially an African-American pastor of a multi-ethnic church, I got Anglo people. (laughs) Some of y'all. And one of the most complicated things to work through when you're talking race reconciliation is this white guilt. And out of white guilt comes all kind of messed up responses to race. Messed up responses to how they feel about their money and their wealth, and how they talk about it. It feels shameful to talk about these things just because you got the skin, just because your skin looks like the people who stole people. That's the unfortunate result and shame of sin built on and households and legacies built on the backs of of stolen people in an unjust manner. Now, we got to deal with the shame. It doesn't go away without grace. And I don't want y'all living in white guilt, right? I don't want that kind of shame living on us, but it will live, You won't be able to build enough or give enough or or paint enough homes in the ghetto or, or, you know, uh, uh, do enough um, counseling for for the so-called inner city kids. There isn't enough. This is the kind of judgment we're talking about. Now, ironically, we have a harder time getting along. It happens. Malcolm X put it right. The chickens have come home to roost. They will come back to the nest. It, judgment will come back to the place it was born. This is what God's judgment had back. And that was hard to hear, but that is true. Some of our families have done some terrible things, black or white, Asian or Hispanic, and it has come back if that weren't bad enough, in verse 11, it says that the stones and the beams will cry out. If you have constructed a legacy and a family security and household hope on evil gains and evil hearts and evil actions built or constructed, it will eventually become a destructive force. The image here is one of bricks and wood taking from the resources of the land they invaded, being used to build mansions and palaces and even use people to build it like the plantations I talked about. They're, these bricks and these beams will cry out. They will not stay. They will want to go back home to a just place, right? They refuse to stay and remain in the structure that you have built. And when they move, the whole thing will come down. Because you built with what is not yours and used in an evil way to get the dignity, the irony of it, to get dignity and legacy and a sense of worth that you thought you could pass on and would be an eternal, that you would have a good name and a good legacy and a good history about yourself when you're long and gone. And ironically, if it is built with bricks and with wood, that you know, metaphorically, that, that's, that is built out of unjust and evil ways, those bricks and wood will one day, by God's judgment, say, I'm out of here. It's a homemaking. But evil gain can mean a lot of things for us. Right? Family heritage that are built on conning and stealing. I do it for my kids, man. Right? Right? and criminal activities and adulterous affairs and spousal and child control and abuse behind closed doors. It could just be building on that American dream stuff. When we try to keep up with the Joneses to be and make our family and ourselves individually sort of what's the word, Teflon acceptable in this world? To be in all the right circles of advantage, to be members of the right clubs, to marry the right people, to get into the right schools, which requires being in the right neighborhoods, to build a legacy of family name and security that your kids can't mess up no matter how hard they try, and to do so by mistreating and being overly demanding and enslaving and legalistic over your spouse and children of shaming them to be better or by teaching and living in a morality that says you are and they must live life believing that they are better and must be better than the next person, that you must and must not hang out with this or that group, not because they're doing the wrong thing, just because they are lower than you. And in doing so, you cut those people off from their right to not only have social dignity in the way they were created in society, but perceived dignity by you and your family. I was telling Kelly about this third-person dignity. It is important that you look at other people's stories, that you look at narratives, right? This third-person dignity, and look at them and say, wow, they're being the image of lightness of God, even if you're not involved. If your kids look at another narrative and look at it and see themselves as higher, then that is a motivating factor. Or if that's a motivating factor for you, that is building and moving in a legacy that is evil. So you don't have to do anything. You just have to have a mind and a heart and an Uh, a perception that looks at the world and says, yeah, that's just another step for me to climb up. Or another group of people for me to be above. What's driving you? How do you know you're successful? Because you're more successful than this group of people? or as successful as this group of people, what does success mean? If you have to measure it by putting people down or under you or somebody above, it is evil gain. Some of us shame our kids to do better. And in doing so, we make our people, we, we breed the seeds of classism that will help people rise. Yeah, people will get successful. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. If you want to be and climb the classes, let your kids know they better than them. Create competitiveness. I promise if you create a competitive kid, they might climb the social ladder. I promise. You're better than them. You need to make more money than them. Create competition for yourself at work. Run the rat race. You probably will be successful. Your retirement fund might be bigger. But woe to you. It will all come down. I pastor a church of generations. I know how some of these kids of competitiveness end up hating themselves. Despising all that associated with you is good and godly. So much so that some of them associate competitiveness with Christianity and they get that twisted in their minds because they were steeped in an evil classist climb so they reject Christianity they leave the church they leave you they get involved in all kind of psychological messed up issues the counseling bills here are ridiculous Do you know what a large amount of them are? My parents just drove me. They told me I was better. Our house is not built on the gospel. It's built on capitalism and the American dream and looking good and making them look good. You know the real story behind London Bridge? You know some of these rhymes got some real twisted Halloween-like stories behind them. Talk about London Bridge is falling down and it goes, build it with brick and mortar. No, brick and mortar, wash away, London Bridge is falling down. Okay, build it with steel, Oh, steel twists. London Bridge is falling down, my dear lady. The story is this, that London Bridge, it was architecturally, didn't look like it should have stood. But the only way to make sure it would stand was to sacrifice children within the walls of its foundation. We are sacrificing ourselves and our children to keep something going that shouldn't. And it will still fall down. Where am I? Okay, let me me end this. Whether takers are taken, whether evil homework is a homemade broken, what hope do we have? Because I hate to break it to you, there's not one of us here that has not taken what is not ours a homemade out of what we should not have. And there's not one of you here who has not been unjustly taken from or built on top of or put in the mash and mortar of someone's misguided and evil plans and purposes. And at first glance, this looks like karma, Right? Hey, we just became like this Eastern mystic church, right? It's just karma. You do enough bad things no, this is not karma. This is God's designed plan and plot to deal with evil and to redeem you and me. Look back at verse 8 quickly. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. It says here that the remnants of the people shall plunder you. It means that those who have survived and overcome and the taking of things, that is your offspring, someone within your family line, will come back, it's verse seven, they will awake and arise and make those who have stolen tremble. They will shake them down. And then in the woe for those who get evil gain for their household, it says again, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam will respond. You know, I did track down that woman who stole my plants. You know what? Because she was crazy enough to come back for the matching plant. I couldn't find her, she got away with one plant. But I looked around, Kelly's like, she got the other one. She called me, she got the other one. I'm like, okay, I'm getting her. And I saw her, woo, she was moving. So she got in front of her house, which is looks like a crack house, or other kind of house. And, All kind of house going on in there. We don't know what. It's just a bad house in the neighborhood. And she stood there taunting me. You ain't getting this plant back. You can get it back. I said, that's my plant. It's my plant now because I took it. You can get it back if you give me $20. And then other people coming on the porch, don't give them that plant. Make them pay for it. And all these people came out on the porch. And you know where I am? I am stopped in the middle of traffic on Plaza. I am not moving till I get my doggone plant. And all these people are taunting me. And then all of a sudden, she drops the plant. And all these people go back in the house. And I'm like, I won! Yeah! (laughs) Super Negro in the ghetto. I stood up. Until I looked in my rearview mirror. An unmarked police car was right behind me. That's why they went in the house. (laughs) Kelly had called the police saying, my husband's out there. I don't know where he is. (laughs) Someone who had the power and authority to make things right, to reclaim what the world had taken was right there. Some of us are just empty. Stuff has been taken from us all of our lives, our dignity, our money, our hopes, our dreams. Some of us have been, have been used and abused with no hope of ever getting the justice necessary to be healed. This taunt has good news for you and me. Because there is one who has come to be the remnant described in verse 8, who arises and awakes from the dead, right? To take back what sin and sinful people and a world has taken. Back to reclaim your sense of worth and dignity, there is one who is willing to put himself like a stone, like a piece of wood in the history and mess of evil gain and family and household mess to cry out for you to shake things up, to free you from the crash and the trash. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he came as the only one who beat Satan and sin, those forces and people and things that come to kill, steal, and destroy. If the Lord Jesus is part of your story, I don't care how much history and evil history is behind it. If he is your redeemer, then he will remain. He is the remnant. He will arise. He will return. He will cry out and get restorative justice for your pain and emptiness and sorrow. And he will, the Bible says, on his second coming for sure. Shake loose all that has been lost outside and inside. And maybe that does mean some justice happened now, getting your dignity and your plant back but with your treasures through him now being in heaven, guess what, y'all? It is impossible. Did I say impossible? Yes, I did. It is impossible that anything be taken from you or any people may use or abuse you. It is impossible for it to ultimately define you or your story because Jesus comes to redeem and restore you and give you grace and faith and forgiveness to remain and live through and in all that has been Taken. But what if you're the thief? What if you are the evil architect of a lifestyle, a household, or legacy? Is judgment all that is left for us? I hope not. Even for, the, even for my sake, because we have all taken and built on a live what we shouldn't. Look back at verse 6. We're about to finish here. And then verse 10. Second half of verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. And then verse 10 says, <coughs> excuse me, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Just so you know, this chapter in Habakkuk is filled with double meanings again and applications. You know how I had to rewrite parts of Habakkuk so you could see what was being used to weave and build the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this week is no exception. Because I believe for those being saved, the Bible says that Jesus became sin for us so that those who sin can be saved. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, just like the Chaldeans heaped what was not their own, he heaped upon himself what was not his own sin. He loaded himself down with the debt of our sins, of all the wrong things we've taken and built on. He, like verse 10, like another part of the Bible describes, endured what? The shame of the cross by aligning himself with the household and household sins of human beings, of you and me, and he was cut off and forfeited his life. And is Jesus described and Jesus described in the New Testament, looking at verse 11 as the chief cornerstone. This is what Peter says, "As you come to him, come to him thieves and homemakers and evil. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood." to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Now get this, remember what it says in verse 10. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You have done so much to get the reciprocated judgment of God, which is life cut off, which is shame on you. Living in shame, and the scripture is saying a living stone is what you will be if Christ is the chief cornerstone, right? That in your broken house, if you if Christ inserts himself just in the corner of a broken, beat down, sinful house, that all of a sudden life comes to that place, and it is no longer shame you'll get, but love and glory and peace. And forgiveness. Let Jesus take the shame and sin that is not his and take you into his household, a household that is built on eternal love. Woe to you, to us, takers and homemakers. He restores what your sin has taken and made. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have been on both sides of the formula, but you are the chief cornerstone. You are the one who loaded himself up